This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is May 19th, 2022, and this is episode 290. I'm Scott Lindebaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're getting a new museum in BC. Possibly we'll see how things shake out, which I guess might be the perfect place to house Jason Kenney's political career. Although, that would be the Royal Alberta Museum. The joke kind of works. And also, Kenny's, Does it though? Kenny's career may also not be over. It's very weird. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about a lot of other conservative shenanigans. Let's get into it. But before we do 290, we have 10 episodes to go, 10 weeks to go till the 300th episode. We don't know what to do. End of the summer. Tell us. Get in our Slack. DM us. Message us at podcast at politicos.ca, whatever our email address is. Give us some ideas and keep supporting the show at patreon.com slash politicos. First, let's talk about the museum meltdown what started as a fairly interesting kind of news day on last Friday has not been a good week for the BC NDP government. On Friday, a week ago, they announced, quote, a historic investment to build a modern new Royal British Columbia Museum and to safeguard the collection. The idea being the building in Victoria, BC is seismically unsound like many and also quite dated in many of the collections, if you've been through any time recently. And there's been talk of updating it for a while. And we finally got the price tag. It's going to be $789 million. That's a lot. Like the, And that's where things, I think, kind of really started to go off the rails a bit. So for context, most of the other museums that have been built in Canada over the last like two decades or so have generally clustered around $200 million plus or minus 50 million to that. So th- this is a kind of big departure from the norms of what museums have typically cost in Canada. It is worth noting, like, Victoria is a seismic risk factor. Like, it's one thing to build a museum in Calgary or Edmonton where the ground isn't going to move and fall down versus... It doesn't here. add that much to the cost. So here's what we don't know, is how <laughs> does the money break down? Because that would have been super useful and I think that would be in something like a business plan, which people started asking for almost immediately. And then we were told it might come out this week, ideally tomorrow. And now we're told uh, May 24th, I believe, next week, i.e. So they've now dragged this out for a couple of weeks. And it's super unclear why they didn't release the business plan with the announcement because especially because they have it and they've, they've approved it. Ha- and they've apparently had it in hand for months. A month and a half, two months. We don't know exactly. They approved it in March. The BC Today article, piece, I think I saw that from, definitely had the plural on there. Like it's They've had it in hand for quite a while. So let's go through the timeline. And this comes from the minister's statement on the business case that came out yesterday as they as Melanie Mark's team tries to do damage control for their own damage caused. It notes the timeline that assessments were done in 2006, 2014, and 2015 that all identified needs for major seismic upgrades to the Royal BC Museum. In 2018, initial plans were presented to the government and approved. They consulted in 2019. In 2020, an initial business case was started. And in December 2021, 
that was delivered to the government. So they've had a business case since December. Now, I wouldn't expect them to release it right away, especially if they killed it or asked for amendments. But they approved it in March 2022 and then did this announcement last week. And I don't know why they decided to do it last week and not just bring it all together. Now, let's get into the announcement a little bit before we criticize it a bit more, because I think it's important to look at the timeline. The plan of the museum right now is to close it on September 6th of this year and begin traveling exhibitions. The gift shop, IMAX Theater, and food trucks get to stay around until 2023. In 2024, hazardous materials abatement and deconstruction will begin. The archives will remain open until moving them to the new facility in 2025. And finally, in winter 2026, construction of the new exhibition hall, the one beside the legislature, will begin. And the new museum is expected to open in 2030. They talk about this being a very high-efficiency museum, best HVAC systems. They're going to incorporate mass timber construction, which you just got to put mass timber in everything to reduce greenhouse gases. And it's cool. And they really amped up working with local First Nations on the project team in project development and delivery, especially working with members of the Lekwungen peoples and the Songhees and Esquimalt nations that are the territory holders of that area. All the exhibits will be updated as well by incorporating those nations and nations across BC, as far as I tell. From that side, it's all interesting, except the timeline, which puts it till 2030. Although I was thinking, yeah, like, my kids will only be like 10 by that point or less, and that's actually a great museum age. But it's a big project. We just still don't know the, like, details of where this... Like, they could have held back the big number until they had the business case. They had the business case, so... There's no reason to hold that the big number. The, the real question is, why not release the business case concurrently? And that's still a mystery. So the government is saying uh, we need time to go through and go do all the normal stuff we do with cabinet documents and make sure we're only releasing stuff that's supposed to be released, which no doubt, particularly considering this has been a somewhat controversial project, there will be questions about whether what got redacted and what didn't. Uh, Nevertheless, if they've had that in hand for a couple months, they should have been able to do that by now. So it feels like they re realized after they did the big announcement that they should probably release the business case once people start going, man, $800 million is a lot of money for this. And it's not exactly clear what we're getting for it. So there's a new building, obviously. There's two new buildings. The facilities in Colwood are also being rebuilt. Yeah, it's not clear if that's really count how much of that's counted in here too, because that was a previously announced thing. It it's a mess. Not much is clear on what's getting built for all of this. Uh, yeah, there's some exhibit upgrades, but that's not going to be a hundred million dollars, let alone eight hundred million dollars to redo some exhibits. So all of it's just kind of unclear what we're getting for it, unclear why it's costing this much, and unclear why this is happening now and basically there's a giant series of question marks and very little concrete information about this the one line of criticism that was one of the quickest to come out that i found the most frustrating as many wonky types did was the why spend 800 million on this and not put 800 million dollars into hiring family doctors or something else operational is just that disconnect between capital budgeting and day-to-day -day spending like they couldn't they're different line items build it this yeah, is closer to building a sky train than it is to hiring new family doctors now 
why yeah, so are they, they are... building this when there's a lot of money with low interest rates to go around. So it's not like they're doing this and not doing other things, but people will feel that Yeah, way. there's still schools, hospitals that need to be seismically upgraded too, which in theory are a priority over this. And they are um, being built, but- to be fair. I think some of the challenges with schools is you have to deal with shitty school boards. Yeah, like Surrey, I believe, still has a whole bunch of people, classes sitting out in portables and stuff's moving on that. But there there will for sure be questions, pretty much every like critical project like that that happens after this, just on the priorities thing. And on the capital budget thing, yeah, they get accounted for differently and... Unlike an operational expense, you, you get a big asset to put in the government's ledger on this, and they're accounted for differently and all that. But there is no rule that says the f- percentage of each of uh, operational and capital budgets must be this amount. The Everything does ultimately come from the pot of the taxpayers and how that gets broken out in terms of capital investments versus operational expenses is still a choice governments make. And ultimately, there are finite resources and they do only go so far. And well, it is done separately because it's very useful for accounting purposes and running large organizations and such. There's nevertheless still some degree to which those are, there is a trade off involved. Kind of. But you actually can see is being built on the future revenue it's going to generate. This isn't, this can't be financed entirely against ticket sales, for example, but because you do build an asset, like this is the argument Alex Hemingway is making in his CCPA pitch around affordable housing is governments can pretty much build as much affordable housing as they want because it's an asset that they then rent out and generates revenue and you can just pay for itself. You have to charge market rates on some. Or on some, re- but not re- as many. And you don't even have to go market. market. He has the number. We can dig up. If you haven't looked it up, search Alex Hemingway, affordable housing. He's got a piece in Jacobin elsewhere. Yeah. like They are different. You get the He's, asset in the column and it's it's important, but there, there are sure. still trade-offs involved ultimately. And th- there will... We will be getting an eight hundred million dollar asset out of this, but to do that, there will be eight hundred million dollars going out of the public treasury to to have that happen. That can be pulled in by uh, a loan against itself. It doesn't have to come from taxes revenue. We d- you're not going to face an eight hundred million dollar tax bill. This is why asset infrastructure building is different, though. Right? It is different. But let's get back to the other criticism. Yeah, it's it's accounted. For, yeah, it's accounted for differently. I'm just saying there there is still at the end of the day some fundamental trade offs here. The the fact that they get accounted for differently does not entirely remove another challenge for the government that came up was in the estimates of the finance ministry. The bit of debates in the legislature that only the nerdiest of political nerds dig into and follow, but sometimes really interesting questions come up as the opposition gets to grill ministers for extended periods of time on whatever they feel like, ostensibly related to their actual ministry. And uh, BC Liberal Peter Millobar was grilling Finance Minister and Treasury Board President Selena Robinson about this project because Treasury Board had to approve the business case. And in his questions, Millobar asked about whether this would be governed by, and the construction of it, uh, community Benefit Agreement, a CBA, and I think we've talked about these in the past, which are the BC NDP's big approach to doing large infrastructure projects, which is to focus on making sure there is 
benefits to the community, which largely means hiring union workers, ideally local, and paying living wages for them. Robinson argues that, according to their own estimates, this adds about 1% to 4% to the cost of a project from what they've measured so far. But the idea being, rather than just get the cheapest labor you can, try to make sure that when government dollars go out, it supports workers, which is an ideological position, but one I think the NDP is unsurprisingly taking. When it, Yeah, though now we have questions about whether that's a consistent position or just when it's so, convenient, because they're exempting this from the Yeah, the so I dug through the, the debates because Robinson says, no, we're not doing we determined that this would not work with the CBA. And digging through, it sounds the reason is a little bit more technical around like labor shortages in the capital region, and that would extend the project too much. But they're going to still try and do a lot of the other policies in it. So it's it's not, quote, in the formal sense of working with the CBA, she says, as they are trying to maximize the dollars they're spending, but they're going to still drive our values i.e. make sure we're hiring Indigenous people, hiring underrepresented people, hiring women, and we're helping people skill up. So I think they need a public explanation here. Maybe. Of like, all right, are the CBAs universal for public infrastructure projects? Or if not, is the CBA being withheld here because applying it would further drive this over a billion dollars and that would make it far too expensive to justify would yeah and if it does turn out that's the reason that would vindicate the the liberals long-standing criticism of this that it raises project costs on this stuff and it would in turn be a pretty bad look for the ndp if that if they're avoiding it on a signature project like this to keep the price tape down particularly when there's already concerns the price tape is far too high like as i read through the things she says about it in the debate she talks about uh, the timing of projects and looking around the region and whether they'd have to move labor force around to various projects to get apprenticeship hours in. It sounds like they can probably justify within the technical reasons of what a CBA is versus what a CBA, a not CBA project is and be like, we're still giving it to our favored preferred unions and blah, blah, blah. We're just not doing this element because it would make this impossible to do while we're also building the Cowichan Hospital. And that's probably fine relative to some of the other considerations. Like, why don't we have a business case? The other criticism that came up is from Green MLA Adam Olson. His initial criticisms were interesting because they very quickly mirrored the BC Liberals in the kind of, this is too expensive, why are you doing this and not other things that you said you'd do, yada, yada. But he managed to uh, refine it to something I think more substantive, as he argues the government should instead be prioritizing the repatriation of many of the artifacts within the museum to the nations they were stolen from, particularly the indigenous artifacts. He notes that the museum has been identified as an unsafe place in many ways for indigenous peoples because of the colonialist approach to telling many of the stories and just the fact that her stolen cultural artifacts there. On the counter side, the government has highlighted that the local nations and most nations that like, I don't know of any formal nations that have spoken up against this project or said they don't support it. But I think that's an interesting debate and one that has a little more substance in so many ways. I think what this whole episode is fascinating for, though, is it's like one of the first really 
big screw-ups by the Horgan government in five years? Yeah. It's like the oppositions do what oppositions do and criticize everything the government does. But this is the first one that's really kind of stuck and seems to have resonance outside of a, a small group. The, uh, the school tats, you got a bunch of angry Westsiders to put up big red signs and whatnot. But ultimately, that was a pretty small constituency and it didn't really have broader political impact outside of that and here that's just different like this has clearly struck a nerve with the public in a a way that is different than any of the other potentially controversial government decisions and it yeah it feels out of step with where a lot of the province is and Part of that is because the whole thing has been a case study in how not to announce things and how not to put people's minds at ease on this stuff. But also part of it, it is just a stressful time out there. Inflation is high. There's a lot of economic anxiety. We're apparently having monkey pots now. That's a thing. Cost of living continues to go up. And like Just all around, there's a whole lot of stresses in people's lives. A lot of them cost of living related. and. It feels like the government announcing they're going to spend a billion dollars on this and a very costly version of this, apparently, just compared to other museums. It it feels like the government's not really in touch with where British Columbians are. Oh, I should mention gas prices, too, on that list. Like, gas prices are set in record levels. Like All around, there's just a lot of concerns that life is getting harder in bc and that is not going to be ameliorated by the government's putting a lot of money into replacing one museum i mean it will create jobs they do flag that this will have two thousand job impacts but the question for me is how much is this resonating as an issue and i don't think either of us know that answer we have the sense based on our own guts but i haven't seen a polling on it we kind of hear what the chattering class of the legislative reporters here, but they're definitely a bubble. Everything's a little bit weird since COVID because there aren't not as much going out in public and chatting with normies as it were. We kind of sit in our own <laughs> little online bubbles where partisanship does. Yeah, get although I, so. yeah, I'd be back in the yeah. I've been back in the office for months now, and at least a little bit of water cooler chat, so to speak. I haven't talked about this much, but like I, I get the sense that this isn't uh, going over particularly well with the the people I do talk to that uh, are not as politically tuned in as I am. There's definitely a, a sense out there from what I have seen, but how much of that's anecdotal is hard to say. But this has all the well, in addition to the blowback we have seen. This has all of the characteristics of a project that is going to blow back on the government. And that's without even uh, talking about the high co- culture war element that there's definitely a side eager. There, there is. And that, like, like there's a uh, side that's eager to push that. It, it's relatively. I don't know if they'll be successful. It's relatively minor. In the, it's relatively minor in this. Like people aren't talking about the changes to the exhibits. They are talking about. The fact that there's $800 million for a unclear benefit. Before I saw the price tag, there had been the, the occasional story about the redevelopment project would come up in the Times Colonist. And then there would be a couple letters being like, why are they changing it? It's great as it is. We don't need all this 
political correctness in the museum. And it's you're imagining a museum that you went to when you were a kid 20, 30, 40 years ago, and it hasn't changed much from then. Even if you don't like political correctness, history continues <laughs> and there is more yeah, to well, include. I, yeah, but that was a relatively small like it did thing. It was not anywhere near I've not seen anywhere near as much anger over that as I have you know, in the what past ye- year are they nested in the fall anyway in the past like six to eight months after the that was first announced yeah there's been a little bubbling up of that every now and then but like there there was just not the wa- the blowback anywhere near as much over eight months as i've seen in the six days since this was announced although again here. most so of like, that scale wise is again from the chattering class and the part the hyper partisans yeah but like the hyper partisans were not hyper partisan about that nearly as much as this and the, what i have seen here from people who aren't hyper partisans is also much stronger than that like it's the clear thing is that the NDP have flubbed th- th- this, does seem to- and they keep making it worse for yeah. themselves by dragging this story out, by not getting their business case this week. What could have been like an annoying four or five day story for them because they released on a Friday and then would have had to fix it on Monday or Tuesday has now become a. It's going into a third week. Yeah, and the opposition parties now are now bound to kill us. They get elected like this really does have the the makings of something that has the potential to linger and dodge the ndp for a while construction costs have not gotten cheaper like they, they are continuing to go up and there will be price escalations built into any estimate for a project this size but what we've seen recently is not necessarily a sign that those have been particularly well calibrated in the past and it and that's before you get into the almost inevitable cost overruns that any large project has. So it is quite likely that this thing goes over budget and over beyond schedule, and it be- crosses that billion dollar mark where it becomes a, a very big thing. And then if the there's still confusion about what the actual benefits are, because a, a billion dollars is a yeah, it's a lot of million. money. That four fifths of a billion. Yeah, but once you factor in the inevitable cost escalations that come with any large project, it could get up there. Plus, inflation in the construction sector for years now has been higher than the general CPI inflation rate. But yeah, it has this thing, and then it becomes, it's right in the middle of downtown, so it's a, a very visual thing. This isn't Site C, where even that lasted a long after the announcement, continued to dog the liberals and become a an issue that had to be dealt with. This is going to be a giant hole right beside the legislature where politicians and journalists and, well, visit people in Victoria see every day. Like, it's going to have a very visual reminder of it. Plus that there's going, there's very likely going to be a sense anytime someone is frustrated that they don't have a good, the right healthcare facility in their small community, they the roads are too congested. Their their kids are stuck in a portable at a school because they haven't not enough schools are built. That oh, the NDP can afford a billion dollars for their downtown museum project, but they can't fix this thing. In Nevertheless, the BC Liberals and under that- Ken Falcon has made their first big announcement that they would scrap this if they were elected. And looking at the timeline, that could actually work. There was questions about this in our Slack because it was like, will the NDP get it past the point of no reserve? No 
return, but it sounds like shovels won't be in the ground until 2026 with some of the deconstruction before that. My concern about the debate is if we're cheap on this, like maybe you could do it for less than 789 million. Maybe you could do it for f- maybe 400 you million. Could very likely do it for less. Neither of us know. We haven't seen the business case. <laughs> like the building is not as easy to build as some of the other museums you reference. So we don't know. But if we don't do this right, what are the chances of doing the BC legislature seismic upgrades that are desperately needed, right? Or any other public infrastructure? Like the Royal BC Museum, like I get that it's not a hospital and it's not a school, but it is an institution that we should be proud of. Government. It is something we should have. I think we both agree on that. I think everyone agrees on that, and that's not everyone, but most. Being so that I've, it, it is a ninety-nine percent to one percent issue on that. Like, there, there's no big anti-museum contingency, and it's honestly been a little annoying that the people defending the price tag have been kind of putting out straw men about the opposition just doesn't want museums, which is just complete bullshit. Like people want museums. That's they not just what I just said, though. My set want to have ca- them at it quote what i was trying to bring across is i want to make sure that we have governments that are willing to invest in public cultural infrastructure including the museum including the legislature we can hopefully we get a good business case and then we can have an actual detailed debate about whether this is a good price tag or not but if every time concerningly large price tag comes out we go we shouldn't pay that we're not going to fix the things that need to be fixed. Like we have this debate nationally about 24 Sussex where no one's willing to fix the prime minister's residence. Yeah, that's a its own thing. But yeah, there, there's a there's both a general sense that we are, well, not a general sense. There's both a general fact that Canadians are kind of cheap when it comes to spend actually spending money on a lot of stuff. And that means there's quite a few things we get second-rate versions of. Nevertheless, we, it is important to make sure that the, the money we do spend is spent well, and it, it is incumbent upon governments announcing large price state items to do their homework and, and justify the cost to the taxpayer on this. And that has not been done yet. We, Depending on what comes out in the business case, we may get that, but... We want to be able to do this stuff in a cost-effective manner because if we could have done this for 300 million, 400 million, and use that other 400 million to build a couple more SkyTrain stations, build a school somewhere, like there's real trade-offs when we get to money in the hundred of millions of dollars range. And yeah, interest rates are still low, but there's still a cap on how much we can practically borrow on that. And it's important that governments spend the money wisely even when the money feels cheap now because it there will nevertheless be a trade-off and not just in terms of the money spent but the ability of governments to manage to do, just do the contract administration on large capital projects there's only so many people in the civil service with the contract management skills to handle large capital works and all of these constraints have to be handled with do care and everything we've seen so far does not give anyone confidence that is the case here changing gears for our next segment let's talk about conservatives 
both next door in Alberta, nationally here in BC, and then back to nationally. We'll jump around a little bit. Going to Alberta first, the big story pretty much across the country is that Jason Kenney has resigned, but actually maybe he hasn't. Yesterday, the Battle of Alberta kicked off with the Calgary Flames taking on the Edmonton Oilers in the first hockey game I've watched in a decade, and it was amazing because it ended in a score of 9-6 to six for the Calgary, which is just a blowout, which was quite unlike Jason Kenney's leadership results. We talked about this in, in a few weeks ago because the whole process has been fraught with just chaos as the party is like revolting against it. So they ended up having a mail-in ballot of anyone who had signed it up by a certain point. They had 34,298 party members mail-in ballots by the May 11th deadline, which is an absurd amount. Less than national parties get, but any provincial party would kill for that level of engagement from their membership. Like, I think that needs to be emphasized out of here, is there are a lot of people in Alberta who care about the conservative part. Like, maybe a bunch signed up just to dunk on Jason Kenney, no doubt, you don't get people who are, or at least probably many, who are like NDP voters who just want to stick it to Jason Kenney signing up. Yeah, especially because you have to pay the $10, $15, whatever the UCP's membership fee is, go to the trouble of filling out a mail-in back a ballot. And most of these have a thing where you have to like scan, you know, send a photocopy of your ID. And I don't know, if you're like me, I don't exactly have a photocopier sitting around where it's, it, it's just what logistical hassles and I all said and done to vote in this type of leadership review for a party that requires a certain amount of motivation that just doesn't happen and so they were asked to vote on the question do you approve of the current leader 17,638 said yes 16,660 said no that's amazing i just realized that no number is 16660 which kenny probably does not like being the fundamentalist he is, which is still a good result for him. It's 51.4% saying yes, he got a majority. And he had said he will stick on with being leader if he got 50% plus one, even though I found the bylaws actually, and it said you just need a 50% to stay on because the tie would go to the winner or the incumbent being him. Nevertheless, he correctly noted that leading a party where 48.6% of the people hate you is untenable in the fact that it can't be a united conservative party. He announced his resignation last night as premier and leader of the conservatives. Following a caucus meeting today and leaks last night, it was announced that he's going to stay on though until the new leader is chosen. So rather than there be some interim leader chosen from cabinet or caucus who is relatively non-controversial or doesn't plan on running, Jason Kenney will stick around, kind of like Thomas Mulcair did after he lost. Yeah, although in this case, I think it's a little different. And sitting first ministers, I think, should default towards sticking around unless there's a very good reason why they need to get to the exits like immediately. <laughs> because it it isn't the case where your job is now just to be the person who kind of holds the party together and gets in the good quips in question period. There is a province to run or in other first ministers case the country to run and at that point you're probably better off not bringing someone else up to speed on everything going on in the premier's office 
you're probably better off with something approaching a con- reasonable continuity as the party does their changeover. On the other hand, yeah, just a huge it, chunk. Plus, there's at least the existing, there's also an existing democratic mandate in theory for the person. Um, so if some big decision does come up and stuff does pop out of the blue, COVID being probably the most obvious recent example, it's probably all things considered better that the person who got elected to lead the province is leading it than someone who's keeping a seat warm for a couple months leadership. We don't have popular votes for premiers in this country, Scott. There's no democratic mandate for the premier. Yeah, this is also the what people who get really annoyed when you say drop the writ like no, to but uh, point I, I out. Mean, but I think this in, is more practice, serious because no, it's the UCP that got elected under Jason Kenney, but it isn't him. In practical terms, people vote for the leader more than the party. And we can do the, yeah, this is the way the system works in theory when you're writing your poli-sci essays, but... In practice, it, it, we have a leader-centric system in practice, but not necessarily in theory. And there are some governing is more the art of the practical than the theory. Nevertheless, Kenny has hinted or there have been rumors that he has not ruled out running in the leadership race to replace himself. Oh, man, that's just be Matt's chaos uh, scenario. Which would be fun and wild to see the premier run for his own job. I don't, it's not unprecedented. I can't name the examples offhand, but I know it's happened sometimes successfully, I want to say. Running against him are former party leaders, Brian Jean and Daniel Smith, for they both led the Wild Rose Party, I believe, Brian Jean, up until the point when mm-hmm. it merged, which actually was four years ago to the day that Jason Kenney lost, almost lost his job or quit his job yesterday. What a good anniversary. Cabinet members of the UCP have been thrown around as possible names. Some are on the more moderate centrist side. I could see a scenario with the type of ranked ballot they'll probably use where the Brian Jean and Daniel Smiths who are running on the more freedom caucus side don't get enough support and the moderates don't get enough support, but Kenny somehow emerges as the balance between them, like the status quo. That he I just think that's picks off everyone's very second unlikely. Yeah, but here's the thing: like, if we often talk about how if someone's the front runner, they need to get really high on the first ballot because if people aren't voting for them as their first choice, they've they've made a conscious decision not to select the front runner. At that case, and that is only going to go double when the person's the sitting. Well, premier. here's my thing: is I don't think Kenny would be the front runner in a race to replace himself. Yeah, but like you still have the you still have the it's effectively the same thing going on because even if there's a different front runner, you you have the incumbent effect and it just messes things up. It would have to be way. a very weird uh, race where, like, the wings of the party, the moderates, extreme right, balance out, but neither wants the other to win, and so the seconds go to Kenny. That's how he would get it. It's possible. I don't think it's likely. But who knows? What also throws a wrench in this whole situation is there is one year until the required next election in Alberta, according to the act. They have a window. It could, it has to be in the spring within, I think, a three or six month, three or six week period. That's not a lot of time to hold a leadership race and pick someone to run. The Ontario PCs proved you can do it even faster than that yeah but in that case you have a giant asterisk where they were running against kathleen Wynne, who was 
doing the 16 years of liberal government thing, but even less popular than our version of that here by a massive margin. You could have pretty much put anyone in Tory blue and they would have won that race. As evidenced by Doug Ford. It was... Yeah, no, like you you could have taken Rob Ford on a bad day and he would have won a majority government. That was the urgency that they had to... That Ontario was feeling to get rid of Kathleen Wynne. And, well, just the Ontario Liberal Party in general. Like, it was... But yeah, the mood in that case was very much a whoever became the Tory leader was pretty much guaranteed to win. But that is not the case here because in this case, the Alberta NDP is generally been polling pretty well and is very much competitive. And if the UCP fractures or even just becomes unmotivated to, to really turn out for the UCP because of everything going here, that could spell electoral defeat in a way that having Doug Ford come in at the 11th hour in Ontario when you had a government that was polling somewhere around the level of polio was uh, it's worth just noting different. a lot of the recent polls in Alberta have shown the NDP up by between two and eight points. There have been the occasional outlier that have put the UCP in the lead, like Janet Brown's poll in March. It's a little bit wild. No one knows what to think of Alberta polls. Some people just cannot trust them since 2013, despite... So 2013, no, 2013 no. was our polling. Was, wasn't Alberta 2014? When did Notley win? Notley won in 20, 2015. 2015. No one trusts them since 2015, despite the fact that the 2019... Even the later 2015 polls were pretty good. Like the Part of the problem is people didn't trust the polls in 2015. It was 2011. Because, I mean, Ontario... Uh, Alberta elected a NDP government. That's it was 2011 happen. where the Alberta polls missed badly and the PCs had right, that a swing sense. in. Regardless, um, a lot could happen. Jason Kenney technically has the opportunity to go to the lieutenant governor tomorrow and call a snap election and really play some games. There's been the suggestion, the idea that he could call. He said he's not going to call a snap election. But if you wanted to cement authority and whip everyone into line, you call an election right away. That would do it. Could also like hugely backfire or, on you. Yeah, there's a 50% chance that just blows up the party. And you have, I don't know, who, who are the people in Alberta that's the people to the right of the UCP that are uh, clamoring to get? There's the Mavericks Independence Party or? now, but there have been like four other parties I think the Alberta Advantage Party yeah. is out there. There's a bunch of other ones that have tried to get going. So maybe they all split the vote, but like you could basically have the a resurgent Wild Rose Party pop up as half or 48% or so of the party make for the exits. I guess it all comes down to whether Jason Kenney cares more about the conservative movement in Alberta or Jason Kenney's role leading the conservative movement in Alberta. Is it? Can he put his ego ahead of his ideology? And I don't know. I think he's probably going to do the thing for the cause and step down on that. To be determined, we'll keep watching. It's been a fun week in Alberta politics. Kind of depressing. Like, the, the depressing thing about this is, yeah, Jason Kenney's pretty unpopular and made a lot of bad calls during COVID. But uh, the depressing thing here is that the people organizing to get him out were not the people who thought he should have done more on COVID. 
that the fact that he did anything was a line too far and yeah so those are the people uh, organizing but i'm not convinced that the 48 percent 48.6 percent who voted against him were unified in that i think a big chunk of them were the people who were like no kenny was too ideological too right wing for the piece the old pc party that they liked i think there there is a chunk of that left in that party i don't know how big it is there may be a bit of that but like also that tends to get suppressed when you have the the right fringe really out there going for that. You kind of have a, I don't like this guy, but geez, look at the alternatives type stuff that probably suppress that instinct a bit. Well, moving nationally, another conservative who's out of the job is the party's former finance critic, Ed Fast, BC member of parliament. Fast ran into trouble potentially after criticizing Pierre Polyev's pledge to fire the Bank of Canada governor if he wins uh, to save the economy and stop inflation somehow. It's not how that works, but it doesn't matter. That's not what it's about. Ed Fast's comments to reporters was that, quote, I'm deeply troubled by suggestions by one of our leadership candidates that the candidate would be prepared to interfere already at this stage in the independence of our central bank. We lose some credibility when we do this. It's fair to ask questions to demand solutions to the skyrocketing cost of living. But we also have to respect the institutions that have been granted independence to ensure that they function apart from the political interference. Basically, FAST lays out the establishment view of how monetary policy works in this country pretty much every development and suddenly is out as a campaign manager or he is out as finance critic he says it's to quote offer more dedicated support to the charade campaign who he endorsed back in march and he is one of the co-chairs there Uh, but a lot of it is being seen as the party censuring him which is yeah not greatly caucus members endorse various candidates and that's just kind of how things go for the most part. And the fact that he had some fairly altogether mild criticism should not be the sort of thing that causes someone to lose a, a credit portfolio. And it's also important that you know parties are able to kind of police their own a bit in terms of stuff. And when someone's going kind of off the deep end a bit, like all you ever is with the Bank of Canada stuff, it's... It's important that the the pushback doesn't just entirely come from without the part from outside of the party. Well, and the thing stuff. is, there's a built-in and mechanism to deal with this kind of criticism, which is if when Polyev wins, he doesn't have to give Fast a job. Like Ed Fast can just be yeah. left out of uh, the critic portfolios as punishment for this, unless he gets in line. But I don't know. Maybe he really is passionate about the Shrey campaign, and well. That, that would be a first in Canadian politics. Go. Some people who are passionate about conservatism for whatever reason they're going this route is the Common Sense BC movement, which I think I'd missed that had formed, but we'll all have hopefully forgotten about the guy who didn't get to run for the BC Liberal leadership, Aaron Gunn, because he was rejected by the party in a controversial move. After that happened... He may have actually launched this before, but he launched the Common Sense BC movement, a website, Facebook stuff, to try to advance his brand of conservatism. Um, They've been working behind the scenes and organizing, it seems, as recently this past weekend, they 
took it may have been a hostile takeover it may have just been happening anyway all the positions it may be also be the case that with the uh bc conservative party there isn't enough of an organized group to resist a mild yeah. entry they won all the positions on the bc conservative party's board uh and so it's now the Aaron gun party not officially but as soon as they want this includes the president who is i think still incumbent at the bc conservative party ryan warawa who's uh been involved in all kinds of level of conservative politics. He's been on various federal conservative party electoral district associations. He's run for the party once or twice. He's been on and off involved with the BC Conservative since at least 2004. He's a director of the NPA today, which anyone who's following Vancouver politics will know what that means. And he's the son of former MP Mark Warawa, who was a noted anti-choice like fundamentalist in the Fraser Valley for the Conservative Party. Joining him on the board of the new Conservative Party of BC is Angelo Isidoro, who has also been involved in the NPA. He founded the UBC Free Speech Club. He resigned from the NPA. He may be back, but he did resign after... It's yeah. hard to keep track of what he allegedly going threw on there. white power anyway, and gestures. Controversial. Uh, he's suing Kennedy Stewart for calling him an extremist. He's threatened to sue others, but he's very free speech. And also Lindsay Shepard, who's that former TA from Wilfrid Laurier, who showed Jordan Peterson and got national media attention for everything that happened after that. She, apparently yeah, NBC she now? moved out a few years ago. She started working for the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and had a post on her Twitter, which isn't too active anymore, in January talking about how she was giving birth but had COVID, hadn't been vaccinated, and is being treated as an unvaccinated, hospitalized because of COVID, even though it was because of birth. Uh, it was a weird post. She, congrats on your baby, Lindsay. You should have gotten the vaccine. That's some of the people involved. There were others on the list I saw, but I didn't take the time to look them up. But I'm assuming it's a similar kind of ilk. Yeah. yeah. Uh, ultimately, I, yeah, the who's who on that's probably not the most important thing. What, what is interesting here, obviously, Aaron Dunn has shifted where he's put in his focus, and he has a fairly large following. The BC Conservatives have been very fringe for a while, but potentially guns cachet within right-wing politics is enough to make it more of a force here in BC. And Kevin Falcon's probably going to do everything he can to head that off, and he is almost only going to be more successful than some of the other potential candidates for his position would have been. Like, I could have seen if we had a Val Litwin type running the BC liberals that would leave a pretty wide opening for Aaron Gunn on this probably less so now particularly if Falcon does go ahead with the party renaming thing which they do have a thing scheduled at their upcoming convention for so we, we may actually see some uh, movement on that in the coming hey, months. And the other person who could stand in Gunn's way is the current leader of the Conservative Party of BC Trevor Bolin who we had to look up his name because we I couldn't 100% remember it was, but he is technically still the leader. Nevertheless, Gunn had tweeted 
or posted to his Facebook last weekend, a very large, important and exciting development took place this weekend in BC politics that I look forward to sharing with you all very soon. Smiley face, one step closer to fulfilling the promise I made back in November. Stay tuned. I don't know exactly what he was referring to in November. I think that's when he got rejected from the BC Liberals and said, I'll be back or something like that. Not many have covered this, so I'm just kind of curious to watch it because like you say, I think it's super interesting to see both what happens with the Conservative Party, but more importantly, what happens with the BC Liberals and if and how they react to this. Jumping into quick takes, while we're on BC politics, a couple announcements came out just actually today. First, the oil and gas royalty review that I think we mentioned on the show a few weeks ago came back with the new royalty system for BC. This is actually fairly big news and maybe something to dig into later. But the big news is they are ending the quote, inefficient and outdated subsidies. And according to the BC Greens and some other climate activists, just bringing in new subsidies. But according to the government, over the next two years, we're going to shift to a new system away from the broken, outdated program to one that is a revenue minus cost royalty system, which means what a, what resource companies will have to pay to get oil and gas out of the ground will be dependent on how much it costs to build their well. So once their revenues have exceeded their capital costs, they will have a price-sensitive royalty rate that depends on the commodity of between 5 and 40%. That minimum rate of 5% is up from 3%. So the argument is we are going to get more money out of this. Uh, a lot of the programs that were cancelled or being cancelled were costing the BC government arguably billions of dollars, according to groups like Stand on Earth. And so there was a lot of cheering from environmentalists from this on that some of the biggest subsidies have been cancelled. Still like, why aren't they being taxed prior to them making money or revenues exceeding? Like, we're still subsidizing the construction of oil and gas in some ways, you could say it. Maybe, well, like, a lot of uh, corporate tax stuff is basically taxes on profits rather than taxes on revenues. Like, it's not out of the normal kind of model of this sort My of favorite thing. part of this was the dunk on the Alberta NDP that said, in 2017, Alberta announced it would modernize its royalty system over a 10-year period. It's like, ha, we can do it in two, and ours will be even simpler. I think I remember when the Alberta NDP announced that they would do a royalty review and then it came back and it was like, oh, we'll just do a couple little tweaks and people were pissed. The response to this seems more positive where it's just they should have gone harder and faster and, I don't know, stopped all oil and gas extraction. Yeah, from the base anyway and the Green Party. That the Liberals are being a bit, being somewhat reliable. I think they're focusing mostly on the museum stuff, which is probably the uh, smarter political play, but... They've had some negative stuff to say on this as well, but yeah, the royalty stuff's always a, a tough one because it's always a challenge to to set the rates, and no matter what, you're going to have someone thinking they're too high or too low, and anyone who thinks they're too low is going to be accusing you of subsidizing stuff unreasonably, and it, it's always a political mess. It's probably why they don't get touched too often. Well, and it's funny that you bring it back to the museum, and I want to get back into that debate, but it's just like the difference between like kind of a vanity project that's not actually like that big of an investment in the grand scheme of like it's an eight-year project and our budget is 60 billion a year or whatever so like it's not pennies but it's not a lot of but a royalty review is going to have a substantive effect on the province over the next 
several decades. We spent 30 minutes arguing about the museum and we spent five minutes or less on royalty reviews. So sorry to those listeners who've worked on that project. Well, they should announce it on a day that we aren't recording where we can actually have time to fully read all of this. The other thing that was announced today is Craig James, former clerk of the legislature, was guilty, but actually he's mostly innocent. Yeah, so we played that the trial was going on a couple weeks back. In this case, he was found guilty on, I believe, one of the charges related to some of the clothing he purchased, but wasn't found guilty on use of the wood splitter or the retirement fund, which seemed to be the statutiest thing with yeah, them all. Yeah, so the big, like, controversy of that, what flashy one was that he bought this wood splitter and it looked like he was using it for personal use. But there was also this $258,000 retirement fund that he cashed out and seemed like it wasn't fully above board in how it was delivered. We haven't had a chance to go through the ruling itself, but they did find him guilty of fraud and breach of trust. But like you said, it was on the like more minor thing. It was around some clothes that he bought that he said were work attire, but were for personal use. And it's like, all right, that that's something you shouldn't do, but it feels more like you stole the stapler and got caught for that when <laughs> the like six-figure payout you get away with. I Not guilty, in my mind, is not the exact same as innocent. It's just he did the crown didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the wood splitter was unnecessary for the legislature's use or maybe it's that our policies were not good enough in the case and he exploited the loopholes successfully so kind of a lackluster end to the whole trial and situation i think we were chatting about this in the slack and it was just in our dms and it was just like without daryl plekis here being the caricature making this all fun it's kind of just boring now yeah, it, it was the the story was super fun when it was Daryl Plekis and his buddy Alan um, James, Neil Nigel, Alan Pardon? James. Oh yeah, Alan something. I think it was. We shows how it stuck. Basically, him and his uh, buddy he brought in to be. A, yeah, him, his buddy that he brought with him to Victoria to be his um, chief of staff or whatever the equivalent is in the speaker's office. But yeah, basically, those two guys riding around in a car trying to scope out this. Uh, wood splitter and being like amateur PIs. Uh, that was all fun and wild. And this is just, I don't know. It's a, okay, this is the end of the trial. And yeah, it is what it is. The incitement's done as the wood chipper story or wood splitter story where I'm coming down on. This. Yeah, this is probably the, uh, I would guess the last time we're going to talk about the infamous wood splitter at this point. The legislature still owns it. Maybe they'll have a use for it yeah. one day. Maybe it can go in the new museum. <laughs> Yeah, at the very least, it should get a heritage moment, and uh, yeah, maybe it's bought in the museum. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.